everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Kimberly St. Julian Barnett, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Tricia Starks about her latest book, Smoking Under the Czars, A History of Tobacco in Imperial Russia. Tricia is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Arkansas, and let's welcome her to the show. Hi. So, Tricia, thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you, Kimberly, for having me and for um for reading my book. I'm so excited to talk to somebody. <laughs> well, before we get into the amazing book, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, let's see. Oh, I, I am now a full professor of history here at the University of Arkansas. That was my very exciting summer find out. Congrats. Thank you. And I am, let's see, I went to University of Missouri undergrad, and that's when I got to first go over to what was then the Soviet Union and became entranced with especially the material conditions of life and decided to go on to research those at Ohio State University and came out with my first book on the public health system and especially its communication of health messages in the 1920s. And from there, I've moved on to smoking tobacco and um, more into medical history than I never th- ever thought I would be. And so that's where I am now. So moving into the topic of the book, why tobacco? How did you get into researching Russian tobacco? Well, I, as I just mentioned, I went to Russia in 1990 and 91 as an exchange student, as an undergraduate. And it was uh, a lively time to be there. When I went over, I was told to take condoms and cigarettes because both were in short supply and not really well made when you could get hold of them. And I was just shocked at how those cigarettes went. I mean, by 90, we're talking about 60% of males and about 10 to 15% of females were smoking. And I gave Marlboros to everyone because they were just... They were a social commodity. They were a they were an actual commodity. You should, could exchange them for goods and rubles and and for food. It, they were just they were golden. And I I kind of I had that in mind as I started researching the uh, dissertation in the book, and I found out that there was this campaign in 1920 to try and get rid of tobacco in Russia. And I was just astonished because I saw how much people smoked. And then to have this kind of research moment of, really, they tried to stamp out, they tried to have cessation in 1920? Why? And what went wrong? It was just that kind of what went wrong question that we all confront all the time when we're doing Russian and Soviet history really hit me hard with tobacco. And so after I finished the book on uh, public health, I moved on to this topic of trying to figure out why, how, and why it went so horribly awry. That's interesting. So you talk about how Russia became the smoking country. So by the time you get to the Soviet Union, everyone's smoking and you have this commodities, you know, these cool Marlboro cigarettes. So how does Russia become a country of smokers? That was I that was the the first question I started to research was I was really looking at Soviet tobacco and as I started to write the book on Soviet tobacco which I'm still continuing to write 
I kept on finding more and more stuff before the Russian Revolution, and it just kept expanding, expanding. And the the story of that late czarist pe- period was when I found that it really that was the point where tobacco use really entrenched itself. And I was not expecting that. Most countries, cigarette smoking is a much later phenomenon. It's a post-World War One. It's a post-World War II phenomenon. But in Russia, it had taken root well before that. And I, it was a unique story that the Russians had a unique tobacco story even before the Soviet tobacco intervention of 1920. And that's what really got me hooked. And I started to further and further research that and found all of this massive information about a country that was the first to have a massive smoking problem and how they dealt with that, how it, 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 how it was part of culture and how it was part of society and how medical authorities dealt with that, how cultural authorities dealt with that. And, and I was just shocked to find all of this information that I had never really encountered anywhere else before. So you mentioned the unique tobacco story of Russia. So what kind of tobacco is produced in Russia? Is that different from the other types of tobacco you find around the world? It, it is. I, that's an excellent question, an excellent point to bring out is not only is it unique because it's early, but it's unique because of what they smoke and how they smoke. Russians in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, and even into the 1940s and 50s, are associated with a different type of tobacco and a different tobacco delivery device. They tend to smoke oriental or Turkish leaf, which is highly fragrant and um, if you've ever smelled it, you, you know it. It's a, it's a much sharper, more um, full smell than Virginia tobacco. And they also smoked a different kind of tobacco than anywhere else in the world. They, they smoked Mohorka tobacco, which is instead of nicotina tobacco, it's nicotina rustica. It's the original tobacco that Walter Raleigh brought back. It's highly laden with nicotine, like double the amount of nicotine, so much nicotine, it can actually be hallucinogenic at times. They have this really harsh, strong Mahorka tobacco that increasingly is used. They have this different smelling oriental tobacco, and they smoke it in a different kind of um, delivery system. They smoke them in peperosi, which are card hollow cardboard tubed mouthpieces attached to tissue wrapped leaf that's not sauced, that's not sweetened, that's just a blend of different leaf to produce these very fragrant, very um, uh, pungent smokes. And they are renowned at the turn of the century for their leaf and for their smokes. They're very popular in Britain. Um, they're very popular in certain areas of the United States. And of course, they're very popular in Russia. So how are these papyrosi made? So uh, how are they different from a traditional you know, Marlboro cigarette? Uh, there's, there's several differences that, um, that really kind of, one of the things that gets to this, that why Russians smoke more in earlier is because they gravitate towards this type of tobacco and this type of smoke. When you have a smoke that's not uh, a 
pipe or you don't use snuff, you you really get a higher burst of nicotine more quickly. Cigarette smoke is acidic. And so it absorbs, it, it can go into the lungs, whereas cigar smoke is alkaline and pipe smoke, and they go through the mouth. And because cigarette smoke goes into the lungs or because paparossi smoke goes into the lungs, you get 90% of the nicotine in under a minute. You get, you get a quick buzz. And that really creates an intensity of experience that people associate with more nicotine dependency or, or more cigarette dependency. And so this kind of different aspect of smoking with peperosi, which catches on so early for Russians, makes for a much more addictive experience. And so that's a very important part of that. But it also is something that you can either, you can make your own, you can roll your own peperosi. And especially if you've got majorca in the countryside, people are rolling their own. They don't really sauce it. They don't really do a lot of prep for it. You just chop it up, roll it up in a piece of paper and smoke it. But then if you smoke it with these other um, factory made, those factory made ones are usually done by women in mass production and very quickly. And the East European and Russian women become renowned for their ability to make lots of, of pepperosi very quickly and very well. So thinking about these women and their role in making cigarette and making the paparossi cigarettes, can you describe the conditions in a typical paparossi factory during this time period? This, uh, thank you. I love I love the factories. I I was entranced by the information. I have all these lovely kind of firsthand accounts that the Soviets then put together to talk about the horrors of the the pre-1917 factory. And they really liked to use the tobacco factory because there are all of these different issues that you could get into of women's labor and children's labor and poor work conditions and hazards. And and all of those were part of the work experience of Peperosi. The, The Peperosi factories were often kind of ad hoc taking over older buildings, some of them small, only, you know, four to 10 people, but some of them quite large, becoming like the Peperosi factories in St. Petersburg, which were the main producers. We had La Ferme, we have uh, Shaposhnikov. Both of these are large, sometimes 1,000 to 1,500 workers. Um, These workspaces there's large numbers of women. Their females are never less than 50% of the tobacco workforce. And so it's a women's industry, lots of children. And with that, low wages, piecework, long days, 11-hour days, 14-hour days, sometimes with maybe an hour, hour and a half for lunch, but in very overcrowded, poorly planned, um, and and. and and dust-laden environments, toxic environments. And so it's a, it is a um, story of production that is very uh, laden with abuse and uh, difficulties for the workforce. So going into this, so let's look at, examine the role of gender and class and we look at tobacco. So you talk about the gender and cultural and political aspects of Russia and how these kind of contribute to Russia being a different type of tobacco using country. So what role does gender play in this Russian difference? The um that gender plays out in 
all aspects in production, in use, in marketing, and in cessation techniques and in and, and, um, opposition. Gender is all throughout the tobacco story. Uh, but it, just there, as we were talking about production, you know, women are producing, but also, uh, weirdly enough, women are owning many of these factories. Uh, you had mentioned earlier, we were talking about, um, or you mentioned how you love the term, the tobacco queens. And there are these women who are in charge of massive factories in the late 19th century, true tobacco queens. One of them, uh, Shaposhnikova, whose husband dies from typhus. She takes over the factory, then goes on to become the leader of a massive tobacco trust in the early 1900s that has vertical integration of machine shops, papers, uh, paper factories, tobacco warehousing, also um, match factories, an entire full industry that is bent on creating large numbers of products at good prices, but also at manipulating that market at taking control of that market and making it the best that they can experience. And so we have women who are exploited, but also women who are exploiting and then we have them in all of these other areas of use and uh, marketing and uh, it, it, women are throughout and as are men. And, and there's lots of discussions about manliness and masculinity also wrapped up, not necessarily in the production, but in the later stories of marketing, use and cessation. So Getting to um, Shaposnikova, so she's kind of like the Rockefeller of the <laughs> Russian tobacco industry. So how do you, why do you have Russian women who are able to kind of stay claim and be powerful businesswomen in the tobacco industry? I think here we have some of the unique nature of women's rights in Russia that has been so well-documented by scholars like Barbara Alpern Engel and Rochelle Goldberg-Rothschild, where you work on these ideas of women's properties rights, women's political rights, and this unique space that Russian women had for being in business, in the public sphere, and in economic um, power that you don't see elsewhere. And it's one of the reasons I posit that there are so many women that also are smokers in Russia is because they have kind of this, this more uh, slippery relationship with the public sphere and with the political sphere that smoking doesn't take on the same danger that it seems to have in the United States or in Britain or even in France to a certain extent that women aren't seen as endangering male privilege when they smoke. And so there's a lot more openness to it in Russia. Uh, but yeah, there are these ways that women are allowed in that are unique to the Russian, Russian scene. So you mentioned this really interesting idea of women and their smoking kind of being a danger to you know masculinity but you also have your female workers in tobacco factories like they're kind of influenced and participate in radical politics so what is that situation like for these women why do why are they influenced by radical politics you know how do they participate in radical politics you know in in the 19th century that's a great question i i think that um tobacco workers 
are feeling a lot of the same pressures as many other workers, but perhaps in more intensity in terms of increased production, in terms of the pressures of mechanization, in terms of the pressures of piecework. Um, from 1890 to 1914, for example, paper OC production increases by over 7.5 times. And in the same period, we're looking also at exports up over a thousand percent in tobacco products. There's a lot of pressure on women in these industries to put out more tobacco products, more peperosi. And it is a largely female industry, of course. And also the women within tobacco tend to be more urban born, more literate, older than other female workers in other like textile industries or candy. And because of this, they tend to have more connectivity and um, uh, cohesion than some of the other industrial groups. Um, Even so, um, they're not often targeted for organizing. And so a lot of their work is their own. And it it strikes um, many of the professional organizers or many of the um, professional revolutionaries as shocking. Uh, for example, in 1895, there's a massive strike at La Firme in St. Petersburg. Of over 1,400 workers, 1,300 of them walk out. They throw machinery out the windows. They throw t- uh, cigarettes out on the st- or peperosi out on the street. Massive um, uh, um, uh, abuse of property, and they get concessions. And the SDs are, are they, the uh, Marxist groups are completely floored by how strong these women have been, and they just see it as uh, as quite odd to have women so um, uh, active in uh, protection of their rights. And it, it is a, a one of the more unionized groups. Well, uh, after 1905, tobacco unions will have a higher percentage of women than any other unions. And so women are quite visible and active within tobacco in a way that they aren't in some of the other industries. That's interesting that well, women kind of have this really important role in radical politics. And really, you don't see that. I mean, in other countries at this point, I mean, the interesting connection between the unique tobacco factory structure in Russia and how that leads into female involvement in radical politics. So moving away from women for a little bit, let's look at kids. So you have some amazing ads colorful ads um, in the book and there's one on page 146 of this little kid who's smoking and now we have this recent uproar about Stranger Things having too many depictions of smoking whereas you know in Russia in the 19th century we have kids making cigarettes and smoking cigarettes so what role did children play in in tobacco production and consumption in this period? I'm glad you bring up that, that picture when I saw that picture first in the uh, the Russian State Library up in the graphics department. I had, you know, you have that usual kind of group of ladies that are helping you through the archive. And they, they were helping me to look through the pictures. And that one came up and they all just went, oh, there was just this, this, they all thought it so humorous, or I was just horrified to see this image of a child smoking and done. It's, it's done in this kind of Norman Rockwell hallmarky kind of 
isn't he cute? Uh, isn't he just, you know, being just like Papa? It, it's, it was a real kind of cultural clash for me to see, not just in the past, but how even today, or well, that, not today, that was in the 19. Let's, let's say that was in the early 2000s. We'll go with that. Uh, that there was still such a kind of um, a, a, a sweetness to it for the, the Russian women who were looking at it rather than the kind of horror that I saw. Um, but, you know, children are everywhere in this late 19th century, early 20th century in tobacco. They're makers of tobacco products. They're purveyors. They're street sellers. They're um, tobacco. They're either um, rolling them on the street for a, a quick buck or they're selling packs. Uh, they're, they're users. Um, children are using. Um, and there's even a group that starts advertising to adults somewhat by saying, hey, you know, you know, your kids are going to try your tobacco. So you might as well give them good tobacco products. Uh, it's they're 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 seen as users. They're seen there's they're seen as incentives for others to use. And so we see them used in marketing in a lot of different ways um, that children are seen as cute when they smoke. And so it's it's a very different it's a very different story than what you would expect, but um, there's even a, a Chekhov story that I feature in the book of him talking about his son trying tobacco, or, well, not his son, not Chekhov's son, but a story of a gentleman being caught up in how does one discipline children, and it's a, also a commentary on discipline more generally and state discipline too, and seeing children smoking as a rite of passage and not something that's uh, endangering their health or endangering society in any kind of long or even short term way. It's just, it is to be expected. So thinking of this ad and this little boy who is lighting a cigarette and he's just happy and giggling. Do you see a, a gender split in the advertising of children smoking? Is it mostly male children? Do they include female children? Are there different attitudes about that when it comes to children in the tobacco products? There, I, I will have to specify there aren't a lot. I mean, there's only like two or three little examples I know of of children smoking in ads. There are also, though, lots of stories about kids smoking. Usually it is boys seen as a rite of passage of boys. But there are some of young girls. But it definitely is much more a male-identified habit for children that women smoking is... It is more prevalent in Russia at this period. As far as I can tell, I don't have statistical studies to go with this period, but I do have lots of indications that there's female smoking, but female smoking tends to be upper class or peasant female. Um, there's not as much in between, whereas male smoking is diversified across all classes in all regions. And so there's just a prevalence to male smoking that makes also child prevalence of male smoking more, um, more understandable. Um, but, uh, there is, there is some female smoking. There's one ad with female child smoking, but yeah, it doesn't tend to be, it tends to be very much a gender dynamic. So that kind of segues into this greater discussion of, 
ideas of masculinity and tobacco use. How does tobacco use influence Russian ideas of masculinity in the period? That's a great and and huge question. Uh, It's the earliest kind of identification or visual or cultural associations of tobacco use are with soldiers. Um, it's very masculine. It's it, but it's a range of masculinity that then becomes expanded with time. If we start off with soldiers as being our smokers, over time we start to see it expand into the rest of society, and so we see not just soldiers and peasants but also dandies and connoisseurs and upper-class males. And you start to see all sorts of different ways that a male could express identity with a peperosa and have that identity be um, a a spectrum of options. It just is in terms of, you see it also with femininity that a female smoker could be a vamp, could be an upper class, could be a radical kind of suffragette type. And a male smoker could be a, a soldier, a peasant, a worker, a dandy, a connoisseur. He could be all, he could, one ad might have him in a tuxedo. Another might show him, uh, another might be the um, pictures showing uh male smoking after the hunt. Um, You have all sorts of ways that the male smoker is articulated through imagery, through um, literature. And then this is arrayed across class, across region, and then comes part of the smokes themselves that you see that the smokes themselves can be um, arrayed across a very different set of price points, leaf uh, composition, the paper quality, the packaging, and then the marketing. Is the marketing low class, low quality, or is it a high class poster with, there are some of the posters in the book that have like metallic accents or have very artistic function. You can see all of those ideas articulated as a masculine idea, as a feminine idea, as a class concept, as a regional identity. Smoke is just a polyvalent symbol. It can go anywhere you want it to go. And that's, that's part of the allure of the project, as you can see how far it, it embeds in all of these different ways of creating identity, even as late 19th century Russia is in such tremendous flux. So that, that's an interesting idea, how identity can be so intimately entwined with tobacco use. Um, and you have this great ad, the Petty uh, Pepperosi ad, of this chicken who is just dressed up as a dandy. And so I'm, I'm thinking about that and like compared to in America, how we have like the rustic cowboy Marlboro man. Like how do these, I guess, projections of masculinity and tobacco in Russia, are they different from other ones that you would see in, in other countries at this time? That's a, a good question. I I do look I, I did look a lot at advertising in the United States and Britain. And the United States is a later smoking country. So they they're doing primarily chaw until the, the it's only after well, mid to after World War II that the American market goes over fifty percent to um, production of cigarettes. Um, and Russia does that by nineteen fourteen. And by the 1920s, it's over 80% in Russia. 
um, Britain, post-World War I, they start to go more smoking. They're, that's their tip over. But Russia is the first towards this. And so these marketing images in Russia are so much earlier than anywhere else to have these associations of smoking and masculinity um, and, and soldiers and um, also classic figures like the Bogatir, which is just a, a, a weird um, historical thought to have these smoking bogatier. Um, but there, there's all of these images well before anyone else. Um, and so they're kind of foundational. They're without peer. But when you do see later associations of tobacco in the United States, it's often with frontier and Native American imagery, um, almost always male. I don't know that there are any, there's not a lot of female Native American tobacco imagery in the United States market, but there's, there's a Native American imagery, there's use of African American, African Caribbean imagery in Britain and the United States. These, these, um, uh, what do they call them? Gollywog figures are often used in those advertising systems. And you don't see that as much in the Russian case, but they do have, because they're so early, because they have a unique relationship to tobacco, because they have their own different tobacco, they tend to have a different set of images than you see elsewhere, um, especially they, their use of oriental tobacco, of Turkish tobacco, means that they have a lot more odalisque imagery and a lot more um, a, a kind of orientalist imagery than you see elsewhere. So you had, you talked something, uh, and you said something really interesting uh, couple of seconds ago. So it seems like in the United States and in Great Britain, they're kind of using these imperial images and these frontier images and, you know, the projection of these people who are the other to sell tobacco. So that kind of segues into another important theme in your book is the connection between empire and tobacco. And looking at Russian tobacco, especially the Oriental and the Mahorka tobacco, these you see these are symbols of difference and imperial domination. How does Mahorka represent both of these elements? That you, I, you sent me that question beforehand, and it really started me thinking about the placement of Mahorka within the empire, but also these other types of leaf, um, Oriana leaf. So it, Mahorka is very much associated with Ukraine. It is. Uh, it requires a short. Shorter growing season than other tobacco um, leaf, and it can take up more wetness, and so it's really well suited to Ukraine. It also doesn't have to be um, really highly produced after it's harvested, so it's you can chop it up and smoke it, and so it has this very strong connection to the Ukrainian and some areas of Crimea. But as you get further into Crimea. As you get into Kavkaz, as you start going out into Central Asia, they start taking with them oriental leaf seed. And as they take over these areas, they also cultivate tobacco in them because tobacco is a, a great cash crop in many ways. It can grow most anywhere. It can grow in poor soil. It can grow in good soil. It's, and it's highly intensive in how much money you get for the, the labor that you put into it. And so we see it going into these areas as a means of pacification, as a means of taking over the area. And then as 
it's grown there, it then becomes associated in imagery and the advertising imagery and the commentaries about the leaf that are used in certain paparossi as a way of talking about the uh, consumption of that area of empire as its incorporation into the Russian empire more generally, that it it feeds into that. So you're actually consuming, you're actually smoking up the Russian imperial project. And through that, you're imbibing it. You're you're inhaling empire, even as you, as you smoke up one of these um, La Firms or one of these uh, uh, Shaposhnikov or Serebrakov. That's one of the ones that comes from uh, the Crimean area. As you smoke up these things, you're, you're also becoming part of the imperial project. And it, so it's, I, I think it's a, a, concept that the product then feeds into the concept and it becomes a physical embodiment and it's circular. It keeps on coming back on itself as you do it. Okay, so let's get into this idea of class and tobacco. How was a tobacco connoisseur different from an urban worker or a peasant or an army guy who smoked tobacco? If that's that's my favorite part of of going through tobacco was trying to feel these differences because connoisseurship is it's it's a wonderful concept because it gives you this idea of learned behavior it gives you this idea of uh, cliques and people that are included and not included secret languages that are secret languages not just of words but secret languages of gestures of products, of accessories. And there are all of these ways that connoisseurship and difference in tobacco could be articulated so that you had the peasant smoker who was associated with Mahorka, who often, who's not buying a a rolled paperosa from the factory because those are too expensive. Who's not because it, they're too expensive, both because they're factory made and also because they're using Oriental tobacco. He is growing his own, chopping it up, and then rolling it in what was called a dog's leg. Just taking a piece of paper, rolling it around his finger, stuffing a little bit of tobacco on the end, and smoking it. You know, I can't even imagine what these smelled or tasted like. I'm sure they were pungent. <laughs> um, so that's that's one kind of a smoker. Then you get into the worker smokers and they're um, more associated with factory made because it showed that they've made the transition from the countryside and they're part of an urban milieu, but they're smoking lower quality ones. So one is famous is Tresvon. Uh, Tresvon, Tresvon, you buy and buy the wagon. I mean, just they were supposed to be so bad. There's one story of this revolutionary woman coming into a room where other revolutionaries are smoking Tresvon and she had to leave the room because her eyes started watering. The smell was so bad. So that's it. And that was an inclusion thing. So you have these upper class revolutionaries smoking Trezvan so that they can smell like and sound like and, and, and be like their, their worker comrades. And so they, you have those kinds of associations. But then you start moving up the ladder and you start moving into the, the soldier. The, the soldiers had their own kind of hierarchies that pipes and cigars are the higher class of uh, the, the, the leadership within the military. And Tolstoy actually gives in uh, Sevastopol stories the full kind of idea of 
this is what the grunt smokes. This is what the leadership smokes. Everyone has their different way of imbibing tobacco, even in the military. So there's all of these complicated sets of rules. And I guess that's what always fascinated me. That was what fascinated me when I first went to the Soviet Union in 90 and 91 is trying to get at those, uh, the milichi beep, the, the, the tiny little bits of life that you can only get when you're there. And and so trying to get back in history and trying to get at those little bitty tiny ways that people negotiated life that how did they know how to how to smoke and who smoked what and what that meant. And, and so all of these complicated ideas of both semiotics of, you know, the signals that we make, but also the language that we have. So in smoking, you can start to get to some of that because people really did remark on it, on what was considered rude or what was uh, what was allowed and what was considered cultured consumption versus what was considered just basic consumption like a beast would consume. How do you make those symbolic differences that then give meaning to ideas of class and culture and belonging. And I, I just, I find it fascinating. And I thought, I, I thought smoking allowed me to get to that in a way that, that I had never been able to before. And so I, I, yeah. And so you, you get on uh, up the level of, you get to the dandy and whether he has a, does he have a case? Does he have a holder? Does he have a case for his matches? So Fabergé made what were called Vesta cases. <laughs> Those were just little cases to hold your matches. Did he have a lighter? I mean, lighters were fairly new. And so to have a lighter was something that was kind of schnazzy. Um, did, he, did he have a cigarette case? Did he have a box that went upon his, his desk? Did he have the special smoking hat so that he wouldn't get the smoke smell on his hair? Did he have the special smoking jacket so he wouldn't get br- burns on his clothes? It just, there was so much you could go to, to try and tease out these differences of how, how you could tell what kind of person you were by what you were consuming. And even as you're doing this, it's also changing you internally. So it's not just an exterior signifier. It's something that's actually having biological changes within. It's just it's just a fascinating place to be, right? It is, especially the idea of a smoking hat. I think that's my favorite <laughs> thing now. <laughs> so looking at, so you talked about the biological and internal changes of tobacco use. So let's look at anti-tobacco discourse. So what kind of people have these anti-tobacco ideas in a country of smokers? You know, it, it, so many, and, and, and from so many different places. Uh, it, there's a long anti-tobacco tradition in Russia through the religious groups. Um, When Russia first encounters tobacco, she has, and this is something my colleague Matt Romanello has written on much more extensively than I have, she has the longest ban against tobacco in the world. Uh, For 70-some years, there's there's a horrible... um, strictures. If you use tobacco, there's slitting of the nostrils, there's there's beating with the mouth. And so there's this long religious tradition. And it's one that the old believers continue um, into the late 19th and 20th century of seeing tobacco as defiling. It's one that Peter the Great plays with by having these kind of anti, as part of his anti-religious ceremonies, he would have tobacco being smoked and um, tobacco in pyres in the corners of the room, just sending up smoke 
so that instead of incense with prayers to God, you had tobacco with prayers to Satan. It was it was great stuff. So you have this long tradition of a religious connotation to anti-tobacco, but you also in the late 19th century start to see moralists, criminologists that are in, inspired by Lombroso and the Italian criminological school to see tobacco as a sign of criminal activity or as a gateway to it. You have sociologists who are worried that tobacco is creating suicide waves. You have psychologists who are worried about it and its creation of nervous individuals. And then you have medical authorities too that are not quite sure, you know, at first Tobacco is brought in as a medicament in its earliest days into Europe, but Russia is a little more resistant to that. And so you have people saying it's good for toothache, people saying it cures cholera, but other people saying it brings on gastroenteritis. Just a lot of different groups who are angry about tobacco and are sharing an anti-tobacco sentiment, but coming from very different perspectives on it. That's really interesting. So you have some amazing examples throughout the book uh, of people who have this anti-tobacco sentiment. But you discuss in particular Dr. M.K. Velitskaya, and, and she has a lot of concerns about the women and children working in the tobacco factories. So what does she see in these you know, female and child patients, and, and what does she think should happen? Um, I, I love Velitskaya. She is not only does she, she does this one year health study of about a thousand workers at 12 different factories. She looks at women, she looks at children, and she looks at all types of disease. Um, and she also engages a lot with the other scientific authorities of the time and the other posited concepts of what happens when you have tobacco workers and what is it doing to them. And she really is very active and very embedded in the medical literature at the time. She's also plagiarized. There are like three or four people that just basically take all of her findings and just blurt them out as their own. It's a, She's an interesting character in her own right. Um, and she looks and she really, she discounts some of the ideas that tobacco um, work causes miscarriage, that it causes infant death, but she really gets into stuff about nerves and she focuses on how tobacco work can um, change the dilation of the pupils uh, and can affect the nervous system. And she focuses a lot on workers' lives outside of the factory, talking about overcrowding, the lack of maternal and child care, their food situation. And she situates a lot of their medical problems there. And so she's interesting in that she's both looking at tobacco as a problem for workers, but also about their lifestyles outside of the factory as part of the problems for their health. So how does gender influence anti-tobacco discourse? So you have Litskaya, who's a female doctor, examining these particular issues. So does that change or influence how people think about not using tobacco? I'm not I'm not sure that they are I don't know how responsive people are to the anti-tobacco message. I don't have a lot of like studies of how many people are trying to quit or anything like that. I have some minor things here and there of this particular factory or this particular worker, but I do have this kind of explosion of anti-tobacco tracts 
And so if I can take this idea that if people are writing about it, then there must be hopefully an audience for it. There is a large amount of anti-tobacco work that starts coming out even as tobacco use, according to production statistics, seems to be on the increase. And in that, we do see a lot of discussion about gender. And it's not necessarily from the religious authorities. They all think that tobacco should just be stopped by everyone. But they, there is this idea that there is an especial danger to women medically and to children because they are not as strong as men. And because they saw tobacco as weakening as one that went after the nerves, they thought women were nervous already. And that if you added tobacco to their systems, it would just break them down and and break them down in ways that really would unsex them, that would make them unable to bear children, that would take away their youth. Um, One doctor even says that, you know, basically with these problems of their yellowed teeth and their um, uh, sallow skin, that a woman ceases to become female. And so there is this kind of desexing or unsexing of women that comes with tobacco use, according to cessationists. For men, there is some concern that it will make them uh, neurasthenic and uh, uh, make them flaccid, make them unable to be um, productive men in a biological sense. And so there is some inference there, but most of the authorities think that if a man is temperate in his tobacco use, he's not going to have any problem. But that for women and children, there was just, there was no amount of tobacco that they could withstand. They needed to be completely devoid of tobacco use. So while we're on the anti-tobacco discourse, we have to talk about Tolstoy. (laughs) Um, So how did Tolstoy, who, you know, is a hard drinker, heavy smoker, how does he go from that to this anti-tobacco advocate? What does he think about the danger of tobacco? Uh, I first must preface, I am not a Tolstoy scholar. Uh, I know there are people out there that know far more about him and his life than I do. All I know is uh, is what is wound up with his decisions about smoking. And in 1890, he has this essay, Why Do Men Stupefy?, in which he goes after all sorts of different stupefying substances. But he spends a particularly large amount of time on tobacco. And according to his son, it's because it you know, after he has this crisis of faith in the 1880s and starts to move into this abstemious lifestyle, giving up alcohol, giving up sex, giving up um, tobacco, that tobacco was the one that was the hardest one for him to shake, that he just, he had been so used to riding with tobacco, he had been so used to using tobacco to get through his day that he had a really hard time giving it up. And from Tolstoy, you you start to move into this entire thing that... 19th century literary culture in Russia was saturated with tobacco. I mean, Dostoevsky is smoking like a fiend one after the other. Um, there's this romantic author, Bestojev Marlinsky, who says, I smoke, therefore I think. I mean, they just, they are wed to tobacco and you see it just along the edges of a lot of material. But it, according to 
other literature, it's just they're smoking all the time as they write. You go to the, what's the name of the cafe? The Stray Dog Cafe that was one of the literary underground cafes in uh, late 19th, early 20th century Petersburg. It's reeks of cigarette smoke. I mean, just everywhere is that is literary, that is artistic, is also flavored with tobacco. Zanati Gippius is, is, you know, everywhere is pictured with not just uh, not just a cigarette and a cigarette and a holder, no less. She's got a full dandy thing going on, but also she's always got a pack of cigarettes with her. So she's not she's not just once and done. She's she's serious. She's got she's got backups ready to go. And so there's just. It's not just Tolstoy, but that the, there's this connectivity between smoking and literature that then you have these anti-smoking messages coming through, being written by the same people sometimes, like Chekhov, who's a medical doctor and a smoker and is smoking throughout his life, but also talking about tobacco as part of his works and, and tobacco as a symbol that he can use to talk about different things within Russia at the time. So it's, I, I, again, it's one of those places where I didn't expect to find so much tobacco, and yet there it was. In, in Tolstoy talking about not doing it, in Dostoevsky using it all the time, it was everywhere. So you talk about Chekhov, who's in this interesting position of being a doctor, but also a writer. And this interesting interconnection between those two. So do you see a, con- a consensus among anti-tobacco advocates on why it's dangerous? Because it seems like you have the moral aspect with the church, but then like the biological and scientific aspect with some of the writers and with a lot of the doctors. Mm-hmm. That's a, and it, there is, it's a very complicated question. And Chekhov is a good example that he doesn't seem to see tobacco was really that big of a deal. According to the the materials I saw, he was much more just using tobacco as kind of a symbol or as a, something to go through, but he wasn't really a big anti-tobacco um, talker. He wasn't really a big anti-tobacco writer, not like Tolstoy, uh, you know, but he just, he used tobacco here and there to punctuate a point. In the people that really write against tobacco, they tended to focus on nicotine and not nicotine as addictive like we know it today, not as, you know, nicotine as bringing on cancer as a carcinogen, but nicotine as a poison. And if you're familiar with anti-tobacco work in the 20th century in Russia, or you've seen even those, you know, posters and magnets that you can still get all around when you go to Moscow or Petersburg, the um, uh, a cap full of nicotine can kill a horse. It, it, they focus on poison and how it is part of the cigarette, cigarette, and as you smoke, you are slowly poisoning yourself. It's kind of a a slow suicide. And from that slow suicide of nicotine poisoning, they see an entire um, spectrum of nervous disease, of sexual debility, of mental instability, of memory memory loss, of gastrointestinal problems. They they thought it paralyzed hunger, that all of these were focused upon nervous disorder, not tuberculosis, not cancer, not addiction, not even like alcohol, which they see as having some kinds of withdrawal symptoms so that there's an idea of an addiction. They don't see withdrawal. They don't see any of this. They talk about nicotine and poison. And they're remarkably kind of unified in that focus. 
So using that as a, a jumping off point, so we see this concern about nicotine and poison in the 19th century. Looking at the turmoil of the revolution and of the civil war in Russia, do these two major political you know, cataclysms, do they impact tobacco use or perceptions of tobacco use at all? That's a, that's a great question. One of the things that's interesting about the revolution and the war, revolution, civil war, is these changes that happen, but these remarkable continuities um, that, yes, there are changes in production. Yes, I mean, you have uh, takeovers of factories and you have the, the bourgeois pull, pulled out and the tobacco factories become national factories. It, there, there are changes there. There are changes in terms of you have much more mass use. Tobacco is used on the front lines and war is often an incubator of tobacco uh, use in terms of it's given to soldiers and then they start to use and it's associated with uh, wartime afterward or associated with camaraderie afterward. And so there's a spread of it into civil society. And so we see a large uptick in tobacco use and the number of people using tobacco. Yet at the same time, what I started with comes back to me that the establishment of a national health service, the um, Narkomstrov, and the idea that health should be foundational to revolutionary justice and building leads to the world's first anti-tobacco campaign at a national level. When Lenin, who's an anti-smoker, hates smokers, talks about, forces the guys to not smoke in his presence, forces them to go and smoke under the, under the flue of the fireplace if they're going to smoke, combines with Semeshko, also an anti-smoker, anti-tobacco um, zealot. They combine and in 1920 try and put together the first national anti-tobacco campaign tried to they posit getting rid of tobacco cultivation of limiting uh, getting rid of tobacco exports because you're poisoning people abroad of trying to put ration cards not allowing children to smoke all sorts of things they fail but they try and and, and Semesh go from there will go on to have a massive anti-tobacco propaganda campaign and some of the world's first um, cessation clinics. And so it, it, it has some remarkable continuities, but because they had this early and extensive experience with tobacco and then this opportunity of revolution to try and change things, we see them taking some rather massive and important steps against tobacco before anyone else. Well, Trish, we've taken up a bit of your time today, and I want to thank you for being on the show. But before we run out of time, I want to ask you the famous last question of the New Books Network podcast. What are you working on right now? Oh, thank you so much. This has been very pleasant, and I... Um, I just have really enjoyed talking with you and your questions about the book. And I hope that you're interested in the next book, which is following a, the story of Soviet tobacco and what happens with that 1920 campaign. How do they then greet an expansion of smoking in the 30s and 40s? 
and what happens, especially in the post-war period, which is where I'm just finishing up right now. Um, I am Cigarettes and Soviets is going to be the next book, and it's coming out, I hope, um, or at least be going out to readers in the next um, few months. And so that's what I'm doing right now, um, is finishing up the work with tobacco to see this story and how it develops after the Russian Revolution and after the um, introduction of a national health service to deal with public health, even as the Soviets produce the very thing that they think is poisoning their people. Well, that sounds really interesting. And I can't wait to see some of the anti-smoking propaganda (laughs) that's going to be in that book. Oh, thank you so much. Well, Trish, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.